Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon and this is the Snooker Scene Podcast. And we're back again for another another week of lockdown. Michael McMullen joins us again from the Republic of Ireland. The first thing to say, Michael, of course, as we're recording this today on Wednesday, we've got the news that Barry Hearn uh, was taken to hospital at the weekend with a minor heart attack. Um, I understand he's back at home now. He's already tweeting, which I suppose is a good sign. But uh, get well soon, Barry, and rest up. Yeah, it's not the first time, of course. Uh, he had another minor heart attack almost 20 years ago now. And, you know, albeit that it is minor, I don't think any type of heart attack is, uh, is ever pleasant. So, yeah, we wish him all the best. And um, we kind of forget. I mean, he is about 70 now. So, you know, he still seems so full of enthusiasm and energy. But, uh, yeah, hopefully uh, he'll be uh, recovering very uh, quickly from that. Yeah, I mean, it's a stressful time uh, for Matrim, uh, for, for everybody, of course, in an uncertain time. And uh, yeah, hopefully he'll put his feet up. He, that takes me on to uh, the next topic. By the way, the main topic of the podcast, we'll be talking about players who won one ranking title. But we've got a bit of follow up before that from uh, last week. But before I get to that, uh, Barry was did an interview with the Sun newspaper at the weekend about the World Championship. Of course, everyone's wondering what's going to happen to this year's World Championship. Will it be on? When will it be on? Well, according to the Sun, the plan is to play effectively in the slot that the Olympics were going to be in. Of course, they've been moved to next year because, of course, the BBC would already have cleared their schedules, as indeed uh, would Eurosport. I think the Sun possibly may have got the date slightly wrong. They said that it was going to start July the 25th. I've been told that the Tour Championship looks like it will still be played, hopefully. Of course, we don't know if these tournaments can be played, but hopefully uh, 21st to 26th. They're not going to overlap, so my prediction is... And here's the thing, no one's mentioned this, of course. It's going to have to start on a Friday because uh, the bank holiday in August is at the end of August. It, the, it finishes on a Monday because it's bank holiday in the UK in May, early May, but that's not going to apply if it is August. So my prediction is it will start if it is able to start on January the 31st. Now, of course, there's been a lot of comment, as you'd imagine, online. I think a lot of so many people have just missed the point. So many people have said, oh, it won't be on. What's the point? Well, here's the thing. If you don't plan for it now, it can't be on in July. Maybe we get to July, it can't be played. But it certainly won't be played if these plans aren't put in place. And all that's happened, I think, very sensibly, is they've got the venue, the Crucible, 
They've got dates. They're waiting on the BBC to confirm. If all that is in place and it is possible to play the World Championship in some way, then that's when it's going to be. It's going to be very strange, but and there may be no audience. We don't know yet, but rather that than not have it at all. I don't think we can go much further than that either because, you know, you go beyond August, you're into September, and certainly if you get any further than that, it's almost then too close to the 2021 Championship, and then you somehow, I think, diminish both of them a little bit if they're played only about six or seven months apart. So I don't think it can go much later than that. And as you say, that they do have to plan ahead. These things don't just happen at the drop of a hat. I think people have fallen into that habit recently of thinking you can just say, right, we'll start this tournament in a couple of days' time. The other thing is, while well, you mentioned the Tour Championship there, well, you could be playing the qualifiers for the World Championship simultaneously to that, really. So it would work well from that point of view. But again, it's the thing we keep coming back to every time we discuss this. None of us is in a position to know how practical it all is. But all they can do, as you say, is plan for it and just hope it all happens. Yeah, the qualifiers, I think, could be the problem. Obviously, there's far more players involved in that over 100. And also, uh, quite a few players have gone back to their home countries. It's not clear, you know, if they'll even be able to fly to Britain. We don't know. People like Ding, you know, gone back to China. Obviously, the tournament would be devalued without the non-British players, but we just don't know. But that's the plan at the moment. And as I say, my prediction is if it does happen, it will be the 31st of July when we start. We will see. Now, back to last week, uh, we had a discussion about the greatest matches outside of the World Championship that have been played. We gave our views and uh, I asked for feedback and we got a lot of emails. Thank you for all your emails. We had some nice comments about the podcast. I'm not going to sit here reading out praise, but thank you for uh, for all the comments. And a lot of people have mentioned the same couple of matches that they think should have been included. And, uh, for example, James Cook uh, emailed, he said, how could you not include the Charity Challenge final, 1997, Stephen Hendry and Ronnie O'Sullivan? That was that was a great match. It was 8-2 uh, to Hendry, O'Sullivan came back to 8 each, and then Hendry had made a maximum. Well, I discounted it for two reasons. One, because I didn't see the whole match. Uh, the, the original ITV broadcast was late at night. It wouldn't have been an hour-long programme, probably about 45 minutes, 50 minutes. So you only actually got a flavour of it. And second, I don't know what you think, but I'm not sure. I mean, look, they're two attacking open players. Of course they are. The two best break builders who've ever lived. But would they have played such an open game had that been, say, the UK Championship final, the Masters final? That match had a slight exhibition feel about it. Yeah, I agree entirely with you. They were actually playing for prize money of their own as well as the charity Mm. money. But as you say, I mean, it it wasn't a full scale. It was a great field and everything. It always was. But it wasn't like a ranking event. If you'd had a final like that in a ranking tournament, I think it probably would have been in there. But I do think it is different because it was the charity challenge, a tournament that the players did, as we say, do their best in. But it's not the same. And I don't think they would have approached it in the same manner. So for that reason, it can't go in. But I think if you were doing a top 10 of all time, certainly if it was a top 10 of non-world championship matches of all time, I think it would fit very comfortably into that. The other match that came up, and for example, Satjinder here um, emailed about this, Stephen Hendry, Mark Williams, the Masters final 1998, Hendry led 9-6, and of course Mark Williams eventually won 10 on a, on a respot. I did think of that match, but... I'm not sure, actually, how great the match was until the end. I mean, uh, Henry should have won probably 10-6, 10-7, couldn't quite close it out for once. Obviously, the, the conclusion was fantastic viewing, really dramatic. I'm not sure, objectively, the rest of the match necessarily was as good as some of the other ones that we that we mentioned. Of course, these are just our opinions. Yeah, it was just the least black, really, is all we remember. I mean, I picked Hunter O'Brien from 2001, and I just thought that was a really fantastic final session. As I was saying the afternoon 
uh, wasn't the greatest. But at least the whole evening session of that was particularly memorable. In the 98 final that you're talking about there with the respot, that's all anyone really remembers about it. And if you were talking about the greatest finishes, shall we say, mm. into finals of all time, obviously that would have to be high up. But I agree with you. The overall package maybe wasn't quite the same. And the other one I wanted to mention, Tom Anderson. Now, he were, I know Tom. He works for Eurosport. He's what uh, David Vine 30 years ago would have called one of the backroom boys <laughs> in, the produ- in the production team. In other words, the people that, that do the actual work. Um, the men and women who out in the trucks who, who work all day to make the rest of it look good. Anyway, Tom, I think Tom got obviously got time in his hands because no one is at Eurosport at the moment um, in the offices, and he, which means he's listening to the podcast. And he meant he brought up the 2014 UK final. He said, "I can't really remember if the quality was that high, but it wasn't long that long after I started working at Eurosport. It's the first time I can remember being really gripped by a snooker match. The way Trump came back at Ronnie just looked like he'd lost his head. It was incredible." Uh, yeah, it was 9-4 to O'Sullivan, Trump 9 each, and O'Sullivan won the decider. That may have made the, the grade had Trump actually completed the comeback. I think it's the fact that in the end, Ronnie, Ronnie still won it that maybe means it's a little lower down the list. Yeah, and, yeah. and if we're talking about UK finals, and that is a good shout from Tom, and my memory of it is the quality was was pretty good. Um, also, the 2010 final, Higgins and Williams, 10-9. I mean, that was, that was right up there with the great ones. And the other one I want to mention as well, actually, is the Mercantile final from 86. Jimmy White's first yeah, ranked title against uh, Cliff Thorburn, uh, going all the way to the last frame and the incredibly dramatic finish to that one. So that, that, that to me, is, is right in there as well. But, you know, th- this is the great thing about it. We could name 20 or 30 matches that would all be in contention. But in the end, we had to just pick a few last week and uh, we were yeah. limited to that. There's only so much, you know, given our ability to waffle on about things, there's only so many matches we can fit in. Yeah, although you don't know this lockdown, if it continues for several months, yeah. we, we might we might mention every match ever played. Uh, just a couple of other things before we continue uh, with the main topic. Alan Morris has emailed. He Alan Morris runs the American Snooker Association. And he was struck by a comment you made about the British Open final, Nigel Bond, John Higgins, that finished early and it gave the newspapers a chance to report it and everyone got home, you know, in good time and so on. And he he's as advocating potentially actually slightly shortening the matches at the World Championship so that you don't have to play all day every day. I have to say, and I've said this before, I don't actually agree with that because I personally think I'd like to keep it as it is because it's been the same test for 40 years for everybody. We've kind of said this a few times. Um and it'd be interesting, though, actually, the World Championship this year. I mean, what if the BBC said, OK, we, we will show it, but we don't only show 17 days. I'm not saying they're going to say that, but then there might be potential cause to slightly change it. I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, thanks. for It was a very long email. I can't read it all out, Alan, but thank you for taking the time to get in touch. And speaking of uh, the Americas, Will Fetch as well. Um, he is in Montreal and he emailed about sort of what's happened to Snooker in Canada. And can we talk about that? I think we will talk about that on another time. I was thinking we might sort of talk about some of the non-British players and, and where they've come from and, and maybe where they've ended up. But it is interesting because Canada was definitely a real hotbed. And uh, now, well, it's not so much, is it? No Canadians uh, on the tour. We also had an email from Jonas who is asking about, he said, it's quite interesting this. He says, well, I'd like to know why some players play with their weaker hand. He says, as I understand it, Barry Hawkins and Mark Williams are actually right-handed a lot of left-handed players use the right hand. I always thought Mark was actually left-handed, so I don't know if that's right or not. Um, but any left-handed play, players out there, let us know. There's a lot of that goes on in schools, actually, particularly in golf. There's a guy I play with a lot who's right-handed but plays left-handed. And Phil Mickelson as well, the most famous left-handed golfer of all. I'm fairly sure he's naturally right-handed. 
I think there's some story about him watching someone swinging a club in a mirror, trying to replicate it the other way around, and that's how he came to play left-handed. I'm not sure if that could really happen with a snooker player. Uh, but, yeah, it's an interesting question, and I suppose it's something we could really only establish by asking one of the many uh, good left-handed players there are now. Mark, Barry, you mentioned there, Judd, Neil, all of those. Jimmy, of course, is still very much around. So plenty of them. Hopefully we'll get the chance to ask one of them at some stage. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, before we do get on to the main topic, I know I keep saying this, but before we get on to the main topic, an interesting email from Chris Penny. Now, he lives in Myanmar, which is impressive already. And he he's suggested a number of topics. One of them is a discussion about the image of snooker and whether it's changed or not. He said, I was brought up, he's 30 now, I was brought up, the idea of playing snooker is the sign of a misspent youth. He lived in Accrington. Uh, there were fewer snooker clubs. He says, although unhealthy, dark and dingy places, they were pretty quiet, certainly not hubs of activity. Now he lives in Myanmar. It's interesting what he says here. He says, playing snooker is quite expensive, but tables are in excellent conditions in clubs and you get a private referee to score and pick the balls out. What about that? But it's still, but despite that, it still has a reputation for sport, as he puts it, as a slightly dodgier clientele. Well, the answer, Chris, to your question is, and it may be not the answer you're expecting. I'm not sure myself and Michael might feel the same. are actually that qualified to talk about the image of snooker because we're so involved in the sport that I'm not sure exactly how people on the outside see it. I do meet people now and again, and, you know, you talk about what you do. And it's interesting. I met a lot of people in the theatre who seem to really like snooker. Maybe they see it as a theatrical sort of experience. You, you also meet people who are in their 40s and 50s and they do the old thing about, I watched it 30 years, my grand, that sort of thing. But the wide, the wider image of snooker, it doesn't seem to be that good in the newspapers. They're not particularly interested in Britain in snooker. Um, how it's perceived outside of that, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, the media tends to have a very narrow agenda with both news and sport and everything else nowadays. And I don't think snooker quite fits into that. And that's absolutely fine, really, because the part of the media that does like snooker is television companies who pay big money to show it to big audiences. So that's what really matters there. The point I would say as well, I know you don't really play at all now, Dave, and I play mm. less and less really as the years go by. And one of the reasons for that is I've become a bit spoilt because I was at Nigel Bond's Academy a few years ago. I've played on the tables there. I played on the practice tables at the Masters. Then you go back into a club, and if you're a genuine enthusiast, you don't want to play anymore on you know, ragged tables that aren't well looked after. So he does raise an interesting point there. And now obviously, you know, you don't have as much time as you get older and you've other responsibilities in life. But I, for one, would certainly play, I think, more and would be willing to pay a bit more if you could go into clubs where the tables were in better condition. You don't want particularly salubrious surroundings, I don't think, because I'm not sure that really suits snooker. But certainly uh, the point he makes about the quality of the tables and that, I think for real enthusiasts of the game, it would make a big, big difference and draw a lot of people back to playing again. Yeah, and I, I guess the question is, what do we want the image of snooker to be? I mean, if you look at um, World Snooker Tour, the governing body, I kind of said this on another podcast, but at the Masters, they sort of went up market. They had the new hospitality, which is all very smart, and they brought in sort of corporate guests and people willing to spend the money. But then literally a month later, you had the shootout, which was where everyone was encouraged to get, get drunk and, sh and shout out. They're completely different. I think one of the issues over the years is the snooker audience are hard to define because it is a sport for everybody. You see men and women, people of all ages, all social classes, all backgrounds. That's a good thing, but it's hard for a sponsor to identify, you know, who is the snooker person because – it's a sport like golf or a rugby union or tennis tends to be more middle class cricket, maybe snooker. It is everybody. That's a good thing. But it means getting a sort of blue chip sponsor is maybe harder. One thing I would say, though, is I, I mean, I, I've been involved in various roles in the game over the years, including at the governing body. I've met so many people from the governing body over the years talking about how do we get young people involved? 
And they're always like middle-aged men. You know, <laughs> they actually they don't really know what young people think. I think at least now, if you look at the the sort of social media that they do and all that, they've got a bit of a handle on it. There's a, a young guy called Sam who knows what 25 year olds like because he is 25, and that that makes a big difference. And I think the work that they do on that side actually is really good. And it is perhaps slightly changing the image of snooker for younger people who, as we know, are all over social media. So maybe that's making a difference. But in terms of what we want the image to be, I, I quite like the fact that it's it's open to everybody. And I quite like the fact that the players are down to earth. As you've said before, the money hasn't got so out of control that they're not real people. Um, whether that's enough to keep snooker where it is, I don't know. I sat reminiscing with Sam at the Crucible. I think it was maybe last year or the year before. And I was talking about how great it was being in the arena for the deciding frame finish in 2002. And he was saying, yeah, I snuck out of bed to watch it. I was seven years old at the time. Now, that made me feel ancient. But, yeah, I mean, look, we love the fact that snooker's down to earth. It wouldn't be remotely the same if it wasn't like that. And, you know, I don't think other sports have retained that. Football has completely lost any down to earth nature that it had a generation or two ago darts i think has maybe in some respects gone a little too far and i don't think we'd want to see snooker go down particularly that road in terms of the atmosphere you have at those events now so i think it's really really important that snooker holds on to that down-to-earth atmosphere that it has and i'd rather see that without with slightly less prize money for the players to play for i'm not sure they would agree with that uh, than much more money in the game, but a completely different image. And you sort of feel it's lost its soul a bit. So I'm, I'm glad we haven't uh, gone down that road, and, and I hope we don't. You just have to strike the balance between, as you say, trying to bring it on a bit and develop it and bring it to new audiences, but not lose the heart and soul of, of snooker, not just as a game, but as a culture. Yeah, absolutely. OK, well, we've been going 16 minutes. We haven't actually started the topic yet that we're here to talk about. So the topic is, well, I'll let you introduce this because it was your idea. One time ranking event winners. One hit wonders. The Chesney Hawkses of the That's snooker that. world. Guys who won one ranking event and never won another one. Some of them you were surprised that they never won one. A lot of them you were very surprised that they did manage to win one in the first place. So it's uh, it's a good topic to talk about and maybe why it was that certain players managed to do it at a particular time, and also, interestingly, why it was that uh, they never managed to do it again. Well, I looked this up, and there are 30 players who won one ranking event. Now, of course, some of them are still playing, so some of them could win another one. You look at someone like, I don't know, Liang Wenbo, you could see him winning another one, potentially Luca Brussel. Some are still playing, and it's less likely, like Nigel Bond, who talked about, uh, last year, who's sort of in the autumn of his last last year, last week, we took the sort of autumn of his career, and some, of course, have retired. Some of the names on the list, well, I think some of the names on the list show this up to be not quite an even playing field because we've got people like Alex Higgins, John Spencer, Terry Griffiths. Now, of course, when they were in their heyday, there were hardly any ranking events. I mean, the, the original ranking events were was just the World Championship, and then in the early eighties. You know, literally three or four events cropped up and then it sort of built and built. But even by the late 80s, there were only seven or eight ranking tournaments. And of course, in that era, you know, Steve Davis was probably going to win half of them in a season. So everyone else was sort of scrapping for the rest. There was a time when Steve was on something like 25 or 26 ranking titles and the second place player, or there was probably a number of players tied for second, on the all-time list is two. So that really <laughs> underlines both of those points you're making. It was so hard. Steve didn't really give much leeway to anyone else. If he got knocked out of a tournament, the window of opportunity was there. Of course, the opportunity was always there for players uh, to knock him out themselves. But yeah, prior to that, John Spencer, you mentioned in particular, there was only that one ranking event uh, a year. And by the time there were more tournaments, he was well past his best. Terry Griffiths, you mentioned there, won the first ranking event that he ever played in and never won another mm. one after that. 
But he did win, and Alex Siggins is the same. They won the UK Championship before it was a ranking event, but it was still a massive deal because hardly any tournaments, and it was established as basically the second biggest tournament. And of course, they also, and this also complicates it, those two, in particular Griffiths and Higgins, they won the Masters. Now, that's not a ranking event, but it's a tournament everyone wants on their CV. Um, So it's a slightly sort of misleading topic, but let's talk about some of the players who maybe you think would have won more. And I think one of the most obvious ones is a world champion, Joe Johnson. And obviously Joe broke through in 1986. Um, he wasn't a complete unknown. You know, he, he got himself in the top 16. He'd been in the semi-final, but it was a big surprise. Got to the final again the year later. Didn't win another ranking event. Now, I mean, I know Joe really well, and he pretty soon after that was actually quite ill. I mean, he had several heart attacks and that clearly affected his game. But I think also what affected it was just the, the sudden exposure. Suddenly the expectation put on him to back up the world title victory. And as I say, hardly any tournaments. Not not straightforward to just waltz in and start winning. Yeah, and he'd also been in a final uh, before he won the world championship. People won't yeah. underestimate, actually, what Joe achieved. Uh, the professional players tournament, which wasn't a televised event, but it, it, it did still count for ranking points. And indeed, he only uh, lost out uh, in the deciding frame of that final. Uh, yeah, I mean, Joe remained a good player for a few years after that, but Look at it this way. He could very easily have gone through his career without ever winning even one ranking title. And if you are only going to win one, he certainly picked the best one to do and the best circumstances in which to do it because it was at a time when the game's uh, profile was at its absolute peak in the UK. And he beat the man who was the most famous sportsman in Britain at the time in the final. Uh, He did win the Scottish Masters after that, which was a strong field, but not everyone was in it. Uh, and that was it, really. He, he never really got all that close. I know he was in a UK semi-final um, after he had lost that uh, 87 World Final. It came a few months later. I think it was Jimmy beat him in the semis of the UK. But uh, yeah, as, as we say, if, if you're if you're only going to win one, make it the big one. Well, I think the point is, it, it, for his career and his kind of status in the game, winning the World Championship was better than winning five ranking events that people have kind of forgotten about. Um, sure. You know that was the big hit, and you know, and and he's on that trophy, and that's all, all that really, all that really counts. I was looking down the list. My memory of Tony Mio winning the British Open was everyone was saying, "Oh, at long last, you know, he's won a tournament." He was actually only twenty nine, you know, when he won it. I, I had in my mind he was in his sort of late thirties, but he wasn't. He was still certainly by today's standards a young man. Yeah, he'd been around a long time. I suppose that was part of it, and he was one of those people. Well, like everyone in the eighties, actually, he looked older than he actually was. <laughs> but um, he, he had gone on a bit of a slump. He dropped out of the top sixteen quite suddenly. Actually, he went from being the top player who you thought was on the brink of winning the title to not even being in the top sixteen quite quickly. And he wasn't back in it by the time he won the British Open. Um, the thing about that was what a dreadful final it was. It wasn't mm-hmm. even close, as I recall, uh, the final against Dean Reynolds. But he went on from there to get to the semi-finals of the World Championship a few weeks later. So it did herald uh, an absolute renaissance in his game. But he'd been very close as well. I think maybe that was part of uh, the reason why people were saying at long last, because he'd so nearly won the Ladder Classic five years earlier. He'd won other tournaments as well. He'd won the World Double so many times with Steve Davis. He'd won the English Professional Championship a couple of times. So I think that maybe was why people felt he'd been knocking on the door a long time. Uh, but then when he did win it, as we say, it was, it was completely out of the blue. Yeah, well, ITV had several interesting sort of one-time winners. One of them actually contacted me last week, Neil Folds, because Neil, Neil, we were talking about the greatest matches ever, and he said he can't believe we didn't pick his match with Ken Owers at the at the International Open that he actually that he actually won. Of course, that famously the thing about that match was it was only shown in brief highlights, and it was Ken Owers' TV debut. But the the only 
uh, time you saw him was literally a cutaway of him smoking a cigarette. That was all all you saw of him because I just showed the frame that Neil won to win the match. Anyway, he went on to win the tournament. I mean, that was a great season for him, actually, because he, he won that. He was UK Championship runner-up, British Open runner-up. But, of course, there were six ranking events, and the same thing applied. Steve won half of them, and Jimmy won the other two. So Neil won that one. Um, you know, they, they were scrapping, basically, for anything that Steve wasn't going to win, those guys. Yeah, he had an easy draw, Neil. Easy path through to the final. I mean, he beat his dad along the way, didn't he? <laughs> um, no, but it was... The, it was his first tournament, his first ranking tournament, actually, as a top 16 player. Now, the final was three sessions against Cliff Thorburn. Now, that's enough to take, you know, take it out of anyone. So that was a very impressive win from Thorburn was ranked number two in the world at the time. He'd only just made it through to the final, actually, because he got through in a decider against Eugene Hughes. But once he had done that, to go on and beat Thorburn in the final was fantastic. And as you say, what a great season he had. He got to the UK final. Uh, he was in the Grand Prix semi-final. I think he only lost in a decider there. And then the one tournament I couldn't believe he didn't win was the British Open because he played so well in that. And he just fell away on the final day. That was another three-session final. He was leading going into the last session and Jimmy overtook him. Then he went on from there to get to the semi-final of the World Championship. He was up to number three in the world. And it just seems incredible to think how well he had played all season and how well he played in the British Open that week. that he never got to another ranking final again after that. He was only 23 years of age at the time. And for all those reasons, I would say, of all the players we're going to talk about, Neil is the most surprising inclusion, not in the sense that he won a tournament, because that wasn't a surprise, but the fact that he never won another one. You look at all the players who won their first ranking event, the one who you would have absolutely placed at the top of the list in terms of likelihood of winning another one, who never achieved it, for me, is definitely Neil. Even though he remained a very good player for a number of years to come, he did win other tournaments. He won the Scottish Masters, which was a very difficult tournament to win. But looking back now, it seems unbelievable when you think what a good player he was at that time. And he really was outstanding. Uh, the heavy scoring that he produced that week in Derby at the British Open you know, was really remarkable for the time, actually. Uh, so it, it just seems incredible that, that he never actually managed to even reach another ranking final after that. But very important that he did manage to get uh, one ranking title to his uh, to his name in that season. Of course, I blame John D for it, Dave, because I remember him writing uh, a piece shortly before the following season started. And he was about Neil and he finished it by saying one thing is certain by the end of it, another ranking title will have fallen to him. Now, we know John was a terrible tipster. <laughs> and uh, maybe he, he, he put the hex on Neil. But uh, just as well, Neil uh, isn't still a top player now because uh, he would be a real loss to the to the commentary side of it because he's been absolutely magnificent in that. But just, I, I really, looking back on it now, find it remarkable that he never managed to win another one. Well, as I say, um, ITV had a, had a sort of a series of players who were top players who who, who did win tournaments. Sylvain and Francisco, of course, had won the year before. He'd been sort of knocking around for a few years Kirk Stevens, of course, is on the list of players who's never won one. I mean, Kirk is such a, still a big name. He never won one. That was the British Open. The thing about that was the, the viewing audience for that was something like 15 million. Of course, it was just before the World Championship that got the 18 and a half, the Black Ball final. But that was that sort of big ITV, no live football or anything like that. No anything, really, in those days. And lots of people watching the snooker. Yeah, and, and ITV actually made that their flagship event from the start. We mentioned this last week, actually, that when the British Open started, I think it was the first tournament ever to offer a £50,000 winner's cheque. And what an opportunity it was for both of those guys who had established themselves as useful players in the years running up to that. Here they were now in a ranking final, and they must both have thought, 
what an opportunity because I'm not playing Steve Davis. I'm not playing Cliff Thorburn. I'm not playing Jimmy White. I'm playing, you know, another very good player, but someone who I, who I could reasonably beat. And uh, Francisco was the one who managed to do it. And, and actually, that leads us on to another one because I think this is worth mentioning. You talk about the viewing figures that they got for that final. It was the same for the Mercantile a couple of months before that uh, because that was played immediately after Christmas. And the weather in that January of 1985 was absolutely dreadful. So people were staying in. They weren't going anywhere. It was just after Christmas anyway. They were all watching television. Channel 4, actually, the weekend the Mercantile began, showed a drama that achieved the highest rating, which remains the highest rating in the history of Channel 4. So that was the backdrop to that tournament. And of course, as we'll discuss now, I guess, that produced a one-time ranking event winner in its own right, the Mercantile in 85. Yes, I mean, Willie Thorne, he was a better player than one tournament win. Like, like you say with Neil, he was in other finals, of course, famous to the UK final when he led against Davis, Mr. Blue, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, I mean, first thing to say, actually, is I know Willie's not well at the moment. He's in Spain and he's yeah, yeah. undergoing treatment. So, again, we send him our best wishes. Um, but and like you say, though, OK, it was only the one, but it was a huge event, you know, the, the viewing figures, but also there was genuine prestige. As I say, it might be hard for people to understand now, but the only live football you saw in those days would have been World Cups, maybe the FA Cup. But basically, it wasn't week in, week out in those days, live on on a Sunday afternoon like it is now. So the, the space was there for snooker, and snooker filled it. Yeah, and I mean, we talk about the uh, the prestige that you mentioned there. Well, it was added to by the players Willie Thorne had to beat to win that. Because I mentioned Neil, when he won his ranking title, beat Cliff Thorburn in a three-session final. Willie did the same. And that was off the back of beating Steve Davis in a best of 17 semi-final. So there are some players you might look at. Now, I'm not a big believer in this anyway, but you might say that the draw opened up for them a bit. The draw did anything but open up for Willie Thorne that week. I know he believes he should have won more titles. He always felt he was a better player than his results and his rankings suggested. Uh, and he certainly underlined it that week because to have the ability to beat those two players, the two toughest <coughs> opponents you could really have, in long matches over the course of one weekend, that's real quality. Absolutely. Well, I had an email from Jason Phillips from the Horsham District League, and he'd been listening. He said, um, I'm hopeful you can include Steve James in talking about one one uh, plays a one-run ranking event. Of course, that was another ITV event. Again, the Mercantile, uh, 1990. I mean, he was a fantastic player, Steve James. Of course, he beat Stephen Hendry in 91 when Hendry was defending the title for the first time at the Crucible got himself very high up the rankings, lived quite a vivid personal life, I think. He was always seemed to have it, be having motorbike accidents and all sorts of things, but a terrific player, actually. Yeah, and I think there's a bit of a misconception about that tournament because there were loads and loads of shocks and some really obscure players actually did really well in, in that tournament. And you beat Warren King in the final, who, good player, but not someone you would expect to be playing to win your first ranking title. But it's not actually fair to, to Steve James at all because he beat the two best players, certainly in the world rankings, on the way to winning it, he beat John Paris on the way in the last 16. And then he beat Steve Davis in the semi-final. So again, it was not an easy path for him at all. He was a player who nobody was surprised to see winning it. He had uh, joined the top 16 at the end of the previous season. So I think a lot of people felt he would be a ranking event winner, but not necessarily someone who was going to go, in, go on and win a whole load of them. And he had a fantastically entertaining style of play, really, really attacking, um, you know, particularly for that time. And thoroughly earned his, his, his title that week at, at the Mercantile. It's the first ranking event winner of the 90s, of course. Yes. Well, that takes us nicely on to... Now, this here's an interesting thing about Bob Chapron, OK? Um, he, he is the only snooker player who I ever asked for their autograph, 
right? And right. I was always a bit of a contrarian when I was young, I think, which put me in good stead for working in the media, of course. Um, I, I just say that in the past tense, Dave, as if anything has changed in the intervening years. Well, here's the thing. I was at the World Masters, 91, day one, and it was such a big tournament. Was, you know, it was for the Wimbledon the snooker. It was another one of Barry Hearn's uh, ideas. And there was a lot of people milling about, including players. Players would just be walking around, and lots of sort of people, particularly kids uh, and sort of fans, were going up to, you know, the, the obvious ones, getting the autograph. And I saw Bob Chapron. Now, this was the year after he won the British Open. He was just sort of standing there minding his own business. And I thought, I'm going to – no one's asking him. I watched the British Open on ITV. I'm going to get his autograph. So I went up to him, and I said, can you – sign your picture in the program but of course what i didn't realize was i don't think his picture was actually in the program he had that embar- embarrassing thing where he was sort of flicking through it <laughs> look i think his picture was sort of in in the back somewhere but anyway he signed it and that was that but yeah now he of all the players on this list i think he's one of the most surprising i say the most surprising actually when you look at it he, he was a top 32 player at the time but you actually look at his career he'd been a pro for about six years he'd only been beyond the last 16 of a ranking event once before and he only got to the last 16 of a ranking event once after he won it. And he was still on the tour for about another 10 years or so. Now, we'll talk about Dave Harold. He was coming from perhaps an even more obscure position to win it. But what he went on to do after winning his one and only ranking title, he went on to become a top player. Chaperon never did that at all. Now, it was a very strange tournament, that, because Pearl Assurance, huge company, had come in to sponsor the British Open, which had struggled, actually, to hold on to a sponsor. And as part of that, they brought in this random draw which was absolutely brilliant the way it was done because they would have at the end of each round most of the players, maybe all of the players in the arena, they'd invite along a celebrity to conduct the draw. Tournament was in Derby. As it happened at that time, Derby County had a really good team. So Peter Shilton, the legendary England keeper uh, who was playing for Derby, he was one of the people who came along to do it. But the random draw was a big, big factor in producing a very random lineup for the quarterfinals. Only one player from the top 16 made the last eight, and that was Steve James, who just won the Mercantile and was actually number 16. So you might say it was a, you know, made a little easier for Chaperon uh, by the, the fact that so many players got knocked out. But he beat Neil Folds, uh, who was briefly out of the top 16 at the time along the way. And of course, beating Alex Higgins in a big final. I mean, that was a big deal as well. The, the thing about it is, um, wasn't that the one where he, he needed all the snookers in the last 16? And, and got through against Robidoux yeah he needed I think at least four I think he needed I think it was four snookers he needed in the decider he got through and to me that summed up that tournament for him because he just battled his way through it he actually didn't play well at any point in that tournament uh, I think he only had something like five breaks over 50 the whole week he had one century that he made early on in the final and didn't make another break over 50 for the rest of the final. Now, you can look at this one of two ways. You can say that, you know, he got lucky that week. And yes, he did. But so did a lot of other players, because you look at the lineup for the quarterfinals. It was a massive chance for someone to make that big breakthrough. Les Dodd was in there. Robert Marshall, Steve Newbury, Martin Clark, most obviously, because he became a top 16 player. But he never won a ranking event. So you can look at it and say it was a big opportunity for a number of players. And Chaperon was the one who took it. And that ultimately is what it's all about. I'm, I'm not a big believer in this ever, the idea that um, if you don't have to beat the very best players to win the title, it demeans it in any way. I think it's a bonus if you do beat some of the best players, but it doesn't take anything away from it at all. And what a story he has to tell. I think he's still involved in the Canadian amateur circuit. He'll be competing there against young lads who weren't even born at the time or wouldn't be old enough to remember it. And he can tell them, I won a big tournament in front of millions of people on British national television. And I beat a two-time world champion in the final to do it. 
what a story to be able to tell, even if it is completely out of kilter with all the rest of his career. Yeah, well, absolutely, and and it's and here's the thing: winning winning one ranking event is better than not winning any. And of course, there, there are players who you would think would have won at least one. One of them is Darren Morgan, of course, lost to Dave Harold in that Asian Open final. Yeah. Um, Dave, I think I, I think was he five hundred to one or something at the start, and the famous line was that his brother had had a ten quid on him or something. I think that was the story that went round. He, he was five hundred to one, and and that was. I mean, that, that's one of the biggest odds winners in any sport ever. I mean, Ben Curtis, I think, when he won the Open, was something like 1,000 to 1. We all know the longest odds ever was Leicester City, uh, starting at 5,000 to 1 to win the Premier League. But in the entire history of sport in the whole world, you've had very, very few 500 to 1 winners. And you look at his career up to that point, he was only in his second season. He'd only been in the last 32 of one tournament. He's actually played Stephen Hendry in that on TV in the Grand Prix and been beaten 5-0. So it was an enormous surprise. And I actually think, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong on this, I think he was the first player to turn pro in that era when the game went open to go on and win a ranking event. Quite possibly. If you, yeah, I think, I, think, I think that's right, yeah. Well, there are other names as well, but I think the one that, that leapt out, maybe more than the likes of Higgins and Griffiths and, and, and Spencer, because we've explained why it's kind of false that they're on the list. It's Matthew Stevens. Matthew yeah. Stevens. Now he's still playing. We must say that he's still playing. But there was a time for about five years, end of nineties, early two thousands, where he was one, certainly one of the best four or five players in the game. He was, as we know, in a couple of world finals, UK finals. He won the Masters. He won the Scottish Masters. But the only ranking event to date that he's won, it was a big one, the UK Championship two thousand and three. You must. Have, I mean, at the point then we talked about Tony Mio. It was a similar thing. Oh, at last he's won one. Surely Matthew's going to carry on winning them. It just, for whatever reason, just didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, he was a player who, you know, seemed to thrive on the long matches. And I think the reason for that was, I mean, you can see it in his world championship record. He seemed to really feel the pressure massively when he was coming towards the end of a match. You remember the world final against Mark Williams? He was like losing buckets of sweat in the arena because he was feeling the pressure so much. Now, in the shorter matches best of nines which were the staple in those days you're kind of heading towards the finish of the match as soon as it starts and i think he uh, struggled to cope with that at times and it maybe helped him in the uk final funnily enough that he went four nil down early on against stephen hendry it almost took the pressure off him and playing the greatest player of all time which i think at that point everyone would have agreed hendry uh, was i'm four nil down here he's playing really well nobody expects me to win and that actually, I think, seemed to relax him a bit. Obviously, then he got to the point where he had the chance to win it. The pressure came back on, but he was in a bit of a rhythm by then. And um, as you say, he'd already won the Masters, which a lot of people would regard as a bigger title. But just couldn't get across the line in, in other finals. He was in the Irish Masters final. He was in the Bahrain final. He was in a couple of UK finals. Uh, but yeah, very surprising to see him on the list. And I still say Neil is perhaps the most surprising player that he didn't go on to win another one but I put Matthew a very close second behind him yeah well as I say he is still uh, still going um, and there's other players who are still going who you suspect probably won't win anymore just because time's against them it was that season where Mark King won in Belfast and Anthony Hamilton won in Berlin two very memorable wins Mark King had his family there it was very very emotional He'd been, both of them turned pro 1991 of course and Anthony at the German Masters, he actually took his parents to Berlin just to spend a bit of time there because he said what a, what a great city it was. Of course, they got to see him win the title. And I think, you know, everyone in the game recognised those two good, solid pros. You know, they turn up week in, week out. Had a lot of disappointments along the way, some good moments as well. But nice to see them both winning a tournament, even if they never win another one. They've got those memories. 
Yeah, and another player of uh, a similar age who's still on the circuit and, you know, is unlikely, you would think, to win another one. Uh, Fergal O'Brien, who we mentioned mm. last week, he won the 1999 British Open, beat Anthony Hamilton, of course, in the final. Incredible to think, actually, that Hamilton was probably a slight favourite to win that. He was bidding for his first ranking title. Imagine if someone had said, well, Anthony, you will win a ranking title eventually, mm. but it's going to take you almost 20 years from now to mm. get there. So, uh, yeah, O'Brien needs to be mentioned in that category as well. Um, and, and another uh, man you know very well, you've worked with a lot over the years, of course, is Mike Hallett. Well, yes. I mean, I think Mike's where he was unlucky, if you, if you can put it like that, in terms of the tournament he won. It, it was not these days the Hong Kong Open, which was the tournament, would be on Eurosport. It would be quite high profile. In those days, of course, it wasn't. So it was one of those tournaments you sort of only saw on teletext, if that makes sense. Um, and unfortunately, of course, what happened subsequently was he lost a higher profile final, the Masters, to Stephen Hendry. So it may be that in the end he was more associated with that. Um, but again, as you've said, you know, you don't, you're not lucky winning these tournaments. You have to play well. He beat Dino Kane, who was a very tough match player uh, in the final. Another player, I guess, who you thought maybe would win more. But his era, we talked about Neil. Mike's problem was people like Stephen Hendry. Jimmy White was still obviously the top player. Davis was still winning titles. John Parrott at that time. And you were all fighting for the tournaments that they didn't win. Yeah, and, and think of the handlings you'd taken in the previous 18 months or so before that Hong Kong Open. 9-0 to Steve Davis in the Masters final, 13-2 to Stephen Hendry in the British Open final. And then two years in a row, he got hammered by Davis at the Crucible, 13-1 and 13-3. So obviously, I mean, any ranking final, particularly at that time, was a big occasion as well. And it looked as though he was going to come up short again because he was 8-6 down in the final. And like you, I've never actually seen that because I don't think it was shown in this part of the world. And it was before our time, so we weren't involved in covering it at all. But uh, anyone who was there says it was actually a fantastic final and mm. uh, a climax absolutely dripping with tension. But he got over the line, won his title by nine frames to eight. He's a fantastic player, Mike. You know, he was really great to watch, very attacking. Some people felt he was too attacking. Uh, when he was in his rhythm, he, he was very fluent and, and wonderful to watch. He did win uh, the Scottish Masters and the Belgian Masters. And, you know, people might write off those tournaments, but they were really, really hard to win against top players. Won those a couple of years later, but... Around that time, he was really starting to struggle in ranking events. And I think it was actually at the end of that season that he won those two that he dropped out of the, the top 16. Yeah, I, I kind of think people like Mike and, and Willie Thorne, their games actually would be better suited to playing now because now it's a much more attacking game and that's how they played. Maybe then it was harder against uh, some of the bruisers. We're, the time's running on, so I'll just mention two more players. And one of them is a player who kind of didn't do a lot after he won this title. He won the European Open uh, in 1991, Tony Jones. Now, I spoke to Mark Johnston-Allen on this podcast because he played him in the final. And he went out there um, basically with his mates, all telling him, or they came over the final, all saying, oh, it's only Tony Jones. You know, you, you got this sort of nailed down. And of course, the minute you hear that, it can only go one way. <laughs> yeah. He, he was a player who was, he was useful enough. He'd been a good amateur. I think he'd done well in the doubles as well one year. But he, he, he was one of those guys who went from being, you know, a useful, competent player to having maybe a two-year period where he became a really good player, because it wasn't completely out of the blue, actually, that he won that. In fact, he was coming towards the end of a decent spell, and it says a lot that the end of that season, he was actually in the top 16. So, I mean, I think that 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 tells you that he wasn't just a you know a, a player who played well in one tournament and never played well in anything else. But yeah, you know, as you say, he didn't really go on to, to achieve anything much after that. What, what a random lineup, by the way, for a ranking final. Tony Jones against Mark Johnston-Allen. But again, Mark had beaten Stephen Hendry on his way to that final. So, um, you know, even if 
Jones wasn't playing one of the top players in the final. Fact was, they all went there trying to be the last man standing, and and he was the one who did it. I think that was the tournament where the British press got to their hotel and they found that the other guests included the Luxembourg national football team. <laughs> so <laughs> Phil and John, it was before our time, guys like that actually became quite pally that week with the uh, the, the Luxembourg uh, footballers. So that was just a, a sideline story from that week in Rotterdam in '91. Well, Tony Jones, he was, he was maybe too relaxed for his own good because he was the player. Jason Ferguson was part of this. Because he lived in Chesterfield, not far from Sheffield, he, he would stay at home during the World Championship. And Jason and a couple of pals went round one morning, about half past nine, knock on the door. His wife answers, oh, we're here to pick Tony up. Gets Tony, gets Tony. What, what, what do you mean, Pivot to do what? You're playing at the Crucible, Tony, this morning. He was playing like an hour later or something. They'd just forgotten. I mean, that's... <laughs> Go on. I was going to say, I think that might have been when he played Watanagh. Yeah. Um, I think he was the seed, actually, and Watanagh was, was very much the man on the rise. But I think that might have been that time. Incredible. I mean, you associate playing at the Crucible with sleepless nights and anxiety. Not for him, he just forgot. The last player I want to mention is someone I rated very highly, Chris Small. Now, Chris mm. um, broke through. He, he, he won like something like 10 matches or something to get to the Crucible in uh, his first year as a pro. Um, yeah, and became kind of established. He had a reputation. John Parrott called him the human limpet because he said he just stuck to him and wouldn't let go. Reputation being a hard match player, which he certainly was. He developed a, a back condition, which left him in a lot of pain. But he won the LG Cup, which had replaced the Grand Prix. In those days, the BBC had four majors. This was before the Triple Crown became a big thing. They had four big tournaments. And he won one of them. He beat Alan Manis in the final, playing through the pain barrier. And I mean, I remember I was there after the final, he got very emotional, understandably, because he'd been through a hell of a lot just to play. And he, it was clear then his career wasn't going to go on that much longer because he was in increasing pain. But he'd won a tournament, and I guess a very special win for him. Yeah, a good lad, Chris. And he had had an absolute beast of a draw because he beat Higgins and O'Sullivan along the way. Uh, then he beat Jimmy Mickey in a very unlikely lineup for the semi-final. But then, of course, trying to beat Alan McManus over two sessions in the final, uh, great achievement. It, it was a good line, actually, I remember at the end of that, because Chris actually gave up his job in a bank to try his hand at the pro snooker circuit when it went to open in 91. As you say, he was at the Crucible uh, at the end of his first season. And I remember him saying when he won the Grand Prix, because it was over £80,000, I think, for the winner, winner, that he was now going back to the bank to finish paying off his mortgage. And, mm -hmm. you know, when, when you consider, as you say, his career, you know, really went downhill very quickly after that through no fault of his own because of that injury. Uh, that he had uh, that was obviously all the more important that he had his mortgage paid off and had that little degree of financial security he's making a bit of a reputation now actually in Scotland as a coach he's got yeah. one or two youngsters coming through who I know he rates quite highly so it'll be nice to see those players coming through not least because it will bring Chris back into the scene because uh, as I say he always came across to me in any dealings I had with him as, as a really good lad very much so. And, and of course, the thing then in terms of the rankings was it, they weren't updated till the end of the season. So he wouldn't have got in straight in the top 16 like he might have done now, which meant he had to qualify for the World Championship that season. And, and inevitably, because he wasn't the quickest player, he was the last man on in the qualifiers. They were being played in Torquay, um, which the venue, the, the Palace Hotel, they used it for the European Open as well. And they played four matches each day, final round. He was the last one on. And what I remember about that was they started de-rigging the other tables while he was still playing. So he's down on like maybe a crucial red or something. And suddenly there's this clattering. I remember him saying this wouldn't have happened to Stephen Hendry, which I'm sure is certainly true. Anyway, he, he got his title and uh, I'm sure he's very proud of it. 
Yeah, and I think another player actually. You were talking yeah. about Chris, and you know he was methodical. He did take his time. But at the other end of the scale, and I think this is someone who we have to mention, um, is uh, David Gray, who uh, mm-hmm. won the Scottish Open back in 2003. And I mean, he had some other great moments in his career. Uh, the win over O'Sullivan at the Crucible was was amazing. Got to the UK final as well in 2004. So uh, he was quite young, I think, when he, when he won. I think he was only about 24, perhaps, when he won that Scottish Open. So, again, a bit surprising that he didn't build on it and win another one. But I know he had problems off the table and everything. And very often you find there is a story like that. Well, absolutely. And, and you look at who he beat in the final, Mark Selby, and you look now at the two players, and Mark's gone on to become one of the all-time greats. And David Gray has kind of disappeared from trace, you know, doesn't doesn't play anymore. Anyway, um, I think that concludes the discussion on the one-time ranking event winners. Keep your messages coming in. By the way, of course, uh, I have this other podcast, which is on the feed uh, interviewing players during this period. I did Mark Selby this week. Mark's got a table at home, so that's quite interesting. But I think he made the point, if you've got nothing to practice for, you don't feel necessarily that keen. And also, and I, I forgot to ask him about this, but of course he can't invite any other players around to practice with him. So he's kind of stuck on his own. But anyway, that's available to listen to. Do uh, let us know any feedback on this week's podcast, any ideas for topics. We've had a lot of emails on that score and we'll be hopefully going through them in the, in the coming weeks. You can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com that's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com and uh, we will be back next week to entertain you what's the has your hair growing back yet because you said last week you've gone bald yeah well no well, I'd, I'd had to shave it all off because i attempted mm. to trim it a bit uh, in the circumstances obviously can't get out for a haircut and once i started trimming it i, I knew it was all going to have to come off it was going to make any sense it's gone back remarkably quickly so uh, it might be a few weeks uh, within the next couple of weeks I might have to ha- have another go at it well, the big thing for me this week was I remembered I, ha- I own an exercise bike I put it in a cupboard years ago so determined I'm sure never to see it again but it's, it's now come out of the cupboard so at least I'm relatively relatively active um, anyway the, the governments both in your country and mine have, have said about how you're allowed to exercise once a day and suddenly now mm. people are thinking oh right maybe I should be exercising once a day <laughs> so people who haven't exercised for years are suddenly doing it now in a lockdown and actually, speaking mm. of that, th- th- there's another uh, snooker connection to the whole unfolding emergency at the moment. City West Hotel, which mm. was the home to the Irish Masters uh, from 2001 to 2005. I believe that's now been earmarked to be used in much the same way as the Excel Arena in London, that they're actually going to use that uh, to-, to treat patients because obviously you know, there's a lot of space there. So, um, yeah, it's, it's gone from uh, staging the Irish Masters to, uh, to being used in that way. It's quite a downbeat ending, that's got to be said, but uh, I guess it leads us on to saying, I hope everyone stays safe and we will be back next week for more. Thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.